This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us on the program today. As always, this is just the thing that we do on Wednesdays. We always try to take it from a perspective of a, a larger worldview, kind of take a step back, maybe not zero so much in on one particular story, but look at the underlying cause of what's going on in our world today. And really, this became very evident to me with two stories that had been brought to my attention. Uh, and it really has to do with a idea of being drawn into something that you should not be drawn into because you believe that you're opposing something that is of a greater threat. This is something that is very, very commonly used in politics. In fact, with the Republican Party, it has become essentially the only argument that they have. Basically, their argument has been, well, yes, we're terrible, but I mean, look at the other guys. Look how crazy they are. And unfortunately, it's become a thing that is, is just common in American politics. We have moved to a place, especially in the past decade or so, that we no longer vote for things, we vote against things. You weren't voting for Mitt Romney, you were voting against Barack Obama, or vice versa. You weren't voting for President Trump, you were voting against Hillary Clinton. Even ardent Trump supporters made this argument when faced with the reality of, of Trump's own shortcomings and that kind of thing, and they would often rebut with, well, yes, all of these things about him are awful, but there's Hillary Clinton. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to rehash that argument or anything like that. I'm just saying this is a common worldview problem that people have to where they are drawn into an error because they believe they're opposing a quote-unquote greater evil. That That's where we get the uh, saying, which of course people originally applied it to lots of different things, but it's it seems like it's the uh, the one of the most common justifications for a vote nowadays in America is that you're voting for a lesser evil. First of all, that's a wrong-headed approach because, of course, if it's a lesser evil, it's still evil. And so you're not ever supposed to be endorsing something that is a lesser evil because you're admitting to endorsing evil, even if it's a smaller evil than the one that they are supposedly against. This is not an idea that is biblical, nor is it one that the Bible ever endorses. Now, the second part of that, I think a great deal of insight is, can be shown with a quote from C.S. Lewis that I'm going to read here quick. And this is Lewis's own observations on what's going on, of course. He says he, referring to the devil here, always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. He relies on your extra dislike of one to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight through between both errors. We have no other concern than that with either of them. And, of course, Lewis being a author that I, I greatly revere and a theologian that had a lot of astute observations about the Scripture, he could not be more spot-on when it comes to this. And this is something that is, is true throughout the, the biblical narrative, that you don't team up with one evil because you really, really don't like the other one. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, sometimes it's not as fun, but ultimately we as Christians are called 
to not engage in error or sin or anything of that nature. We have to be vigilant in making sure that we're not participating in either one of those things, regardless of what the justification or rationale may be. Uh, a really great observation, and I'm using Lewis again, but this time in the narrative sense, basically him illustrating this in story form. If you've ever read his book, The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, there is a tiny little episode in that book, and, and it's actually just, it's not but a few pages long, but it so accurately represents this kind of thinking. So there's a character in that, uh, in that book called uh, Nickabrick. He's a dwarf, and the particular kind of dwarf that he is, he's known as a black dwarf, and it was his kind that actually served the White Queen, who was the, the adversary, the evil one, the antagonist of an earlier book in the series. And his suggestion is that the evil that we are facing now in, in the current book, this is book four, he's referring back to something that happened in book two, He's saying that the evil that is beset upon us right now is so great and so terrible that what we ought to do is we ought to undergo a ritual to bring the witch back from the dead so that she may run off the, the threat that we're facing now, and then we'll worry about getting, getting rid of her later. Now, this is an incredibly stupid idea, because if you understand any of the nature here, you would say that, if anything, she's probably the greater of two evils, but even if she weren't, even if she were the lesser of two evils in this sense, you can see how flawed that kind of thinking is, and what kind of, you know, false goals it could lead you toward. That if you believe that the ends justify the means, then really you become no better then the people, for example, that have been burning down buildings, rioting, all of those things, because that's the same kind of mindset that they use to justify those kinds of evil, base, animalistic, savage actions. Because in their mind, well, yes, what we're doing is wrong and bad, and almost all of them acknowledge that, a few of them don't, but the vast majority of them would say, yeah, burning down a random business for no reason is not a good thing, but their justification, almost without fail, is always, but we're fighting something that is much worse than that, ergo, our tactics are justified. That's the way that their rationale works, that, yeah, we're going to have to hurt some people along the way, and you're going to have to suffer a little bit, but you know what? We're fighting something that is so bad, in their minds, it's systematic racism or whatever label you want to slap on it, that it justifies the evil actions that we're taking to try to get rid of it. This is the kind of flawed thinking that has led to probably more human misery, especially in the 20th century, than any other line of thinking in human history. I mean, isn't really that the, the idea that is at the core of communism? Well, yeah, a violent revolution is not a good thing, and it's not something that we enjoy per se, but it's something that you have to do in order to get to the utopia that we're going to get to by enacting Marxism. That once we implement socialism and we'll, we'll drive towards communism, we get to that utopia. So yeah, even if some innocent people have to die along the way, you know, that's just the price you pay for progress. That's how Marxists always justify the actions that they're doing. 
I mean, yes, some people are going to be financially ruined, and some people, despite not actually doing anything wrong, are probably going to lose their lives, and we may have to even starve some people to death, but ultimately, we're going to get where we need to go, and the ends justify the means. Mao Zedong is a perfect example of this. He systematically starved out about two million people in his great leap forward, and at the end of the day, it was like, okay, well, maybe that wasn't like my best idea. But the point is he doubled down on that same system, even though he knew it was starving people multiple times in that two-year time period. And it, it took, you know, literally millions of, of bodies of his own countrymen to admit, okay, maybe that wasn't the best plan. It wasn't that he just then figured out, hey, what we're doing is starving people. He knew that all the way along. He just saw that as a justifiable sacrifice. And that's the danger of the two errors line of thinking. It's the danger of tribalism. Now, just today, looking through the news and, and scanning through, and I got this from multiple different people. I had people that were asking me about and, and talking to me about uh, what, what seems to be based on everything that I can see a fake news story. And one of them had to do with fast food restaurants, oddly enough. So they were saying that basically Black Lives Matter has started a concerted effort through uh, employees of fast food restaurants to mess with the food of white patrons. Now, this is a thing that has happened before. Yeah. There have been people we know through um, different news stories that have happened really over the past two or three years. Uh, maybe even longer. Maybe I'm not even giving it enough timeline. But there have been incidents, for example, of people in fast food restaurants messing with people's food. Uh, because they're either because of their race or because they're police officers. We, we know that just, uh, what was that, two or three weeks ago that we had the story of the police officers that got their um, order messed up. Uh, interestingly enough, we had one in Arby's where it was actually a hoax, where a police officer claimed that they did something to his food. It turns out that they didn't. And so, you know, even police officers can be caught lying with things like that as well from time to time. But as far as we know, this is something that has happened before, but there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that there is some kind of nationwide concerted effort to do that. Now, I haven't been eating out hardly at all just because of the pandemic and everything and, and having some being a person with extra risk factors. I've been a little extra cautious and not really eating out at all, but you can understand while that would plant the seed of fear. And, and actually, I had one person, because I got several people asking me about this, and I, I've said that it, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any reason to believe that this is actually true, that this is happening on a massive scale. Uh, one person actually tried to, to use a justification of that by saying, well, yeah, but look at all the other terrible things that they've doing. Well, first of all, that's a red herring fallacy. That has nothing to do with it. Just because something is plausible doesn't mean that it's correct. And, and bringing up something that is unconnected to the story as proof is not proof itself. But even leaving that aside, do you, do you see the implication there? Well, these people are so bad that it is happening. Well, maybe it is, but that's not proof. Saying that certain people are capable of something and saying that they are doing something are two entirely different things. But even so, 
I want you to really think about the ramifications of that line of thinking. If people were to buy into this, and it's not true, and there's no reason to believe that it is right now, do you really think that it would be a, not only just a, a bad look, but also it would be a bad thing for our country if all of a sudden we had white people going through drive throughs or going into fast food restaurants be like, oh, there's a black guy making my food. Yeah, I'm not going to eat here. Uh, that breeds actual racism. That would be a an occasion of real racism playing out right now if, if that were to manifest itself in that way. And this is one of the reasons that I've said all of this hatred and mistrust is really doing the exactly what the Marxists and the people at the top want is they're trying to draw you into an error because you really dislike the other error. And this is one of the things that people in the media and activists have been doing for the past couple of weeks now is basically saying anybody, anybody that doesn't affirm that systematic racism is true, even though the stats don't bear that out, we've talked about that on the show here, that there's really no evidence of this. If you're even asking the questions, then you must be a racist. And see, by doing that, what they're doing is they're trying to corner you to where you have to lash back and fight back and, and feel like you have to answer that and say, no, 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 I'm not. And see, then you create this dichotomy. You create a manufactured, completely uh, brought up from whole cloth division between people. Where one side is accusing you of being a racist and, and it's basically a non-falsifiable claim, which is another logical fallacy. That you are assumed to be racist and you have to prove that you are not and you can't prove a negative, ergo the conclusion is going to be, no matter how you answer or what you say, that you are a racist. And then, of course, the person on the other side of that is like, but I'm not a racist, and, and I don't treat people differently or whatever. And so they're going to be very angry and upset and get their emotions, which, I mean, you know, being accused of something so terrible, that's understandable to, to be hurt by that and to be angered by that. So now you have two people that are incredibly angry, that are convinced that the person on the other side of the argument from them is a evil, hateful monster. Because one is just accusing people of racism with no basis for it, the other one is assuming that the other person is racist just based on the color of their skin or uh, you know, any, any number of other factors. And so you can see how it very quickly and with no basis, no even reason for the contention to exist, creates a tension between people that otherwise would normally get along just fine. This is the danger of what Lewis was talking about with the two heirs. Great example that happened the other day. We were talking about this news story on the show yesterday. Bubba Wallace Originally, it made sense to grant him the benefit of the doubt because he basically was like, look, I, I haven't even seen the thing. This was just my pit crew. Uh, I, I didn't see it myself. And, and he believed that there was a hate crime committed against him. And well, you know, if, if there was a person that legitimately did have a black person and they had a noose hung up uh, in, in a place like that, you can understand why that person would be scared and upset and angry. That sh that's a natural reaction to that. But then what happened is once the news came out and the FBI had conducted their investigation, once that had taken place, 
and it turns out that it wasn't a noose at all. It turns out it was just a, a pull-down for a garage door, and basically all the other stalls had something similar to it, and it wasn't like he was singled out for it, and it confirmed that they actually put that garage pull-up months and months before Bubba Wallace was even assigned that garage. Well, once all of that came out and it was an absolute undisputable fact that this was not the case, that there was not a hate crime committed against him, that what happened is a whole bunch of people saw that and were like, ah, yep, see, this is exactly like Jesse Smollett. Jesse Smollett is a person that intentionally created the, the phantom of a hate crime against him. That's not Bubba Wallace. Now, I didn't even know who Bubba Wallace was. I honestly didn't even realize that NASCAR had a black driver literally until this story started cropping up. I know that that's going to shock people, especially me being from Alabama. I don't really like NASCAR. I don't get it. I don't understand why people are uh, are drawn to it. I don't get why people enjoy it. Um, you know, the, the closest thing that I will get to watching a NASCAR race is playing Mario Kart or Diddy Kong Racing. That That is the closest thing that I'm ever going to get to a professional car race. That's just, it's not my thing. So I didn't even know that there was a black driver, honestly. But nonetheless, when all of this blew up and took place, Bubba Wallace's reaction was, based on the information that he had, wholly reasonable. Despite that, a whole bunch of people were accusing him of somehow manufacturing this thing and calling it a hoax and saying it's exactly the same thing as Jesse Smollett. And this illustrates an unfortunate truth that humans are incredibly lazy, especially when it comes to thinking. Because what they want to do is when a story turns out to be untrue and it's a story related to race or whether or not a hate crime took place, they automatically want to file all of that away into the same file. We do exactly the same thing on the broader scale with things like Black Lives Matter. We all know that this happens. There is a certain segment of the population that whenever there is an unarmed black person shot by a police officer, regardless even of the police officer's race, much less their motive and what the investigation comes out with, that if that happened, the black guy was right, he wasn't doing anything wrong, the police officer was a racist. And there is also a group of people that are equally wrong, that any time that happens, they assume that, well, the police officer must have been in the right and the black person must have been a thug that was doing something wrong. And if he got shot and if he was killed, it must be because he deserved it. Well, that's not right either. And a lot of people are drawn into one of those camps because they really dislike the other camp. A lot of the people get drawn into the Black Lives Matter uh, the hellscape that is that organization. They get drawn into that because they really don't like the people that just assume that if there was a police officer and a black guy that got into an altercation, it must be because the black guy was a criminal and the police officers that can never do anything wrong. That's an understandable uh, thing to be angry about. I'm angry about that. And then the reverse is also true. There are a lot of people that jump on to the bandwagon of, well, let's support the police no matter what they do, even if the evidence shows that they were clearly in the wrong, like it was with George Floyd, even though uh, based on everything that I've seen in the George Floyd case and the uh, Aubrey case and a, a lot of the more recent cases, 
it's shown to be that number of people that's just will stick beside the police no matter what, much smaller than the other group. However, uh, there, there seems to be a lot more people that are willing to do this on a case-by-case basis. There, there was almost universal agreement that what happened to George Floyd was wrong. But nonetheless, that's how people get drawn into one of these gray errors by the devil tempting you by saying, but that other error, that's just so much worse. So it, it makes sense for you to join in on one of those things. And this same thing happened with the Bubba Wallace story. Bubba Wallace got... Uh, and this was his explanation on CNN's Don Lemon last night. He went on to talk with him, and he said that it was he basically uh, cited social media specifically for the reason that he got so upset about this. There were a whole bunch of people on social media assuming that Bubba Wallace made the whole thing up, that like he did essentially the same thing as, as Jesse Smollett, who planted the noose there and planned this whole thing, and it was all... Uh, very strategically done, and, and it was all a hoax that was manufactured, just like the Jesse Smollett thing, where he tried to make a hate crime happen. That's not what happened. And the FBI investigation debunks that, just like it debunks the fact that it was put in here for a hate crime. So it not only debunks the, the idea that somebody put it in there as a hate crime, it also debunks, because of the timing of it, it also debunks the idea that somebody planted it there and tried to make it into a hate crime. I was willing to, and, and I think to a great degree I, have, I even still am until we find out more information, to grant the assumption of innocence but ignorance or incompetence because it's always better to assume ignorance or incompetence before malice. That's a general rule of debate when dealing with these issues especially. If there is something that comes out and it turns out it wasn't true, I mean, just based on the original story, it seems like NASCAR jumped the gun here, especially with the whole noose thing. Turns out it's almost always wrong. It's always a hoax. Uh, they did it the same thing, what, what was it, in, in Oregon, I think, where uh, there was a... an act, It was funny because they found out it was actually a black guy that did this, um, which is astounding considering it was in Oregon where there's like three of those. Uh, but he had hung a bunch of ropes that weren't even tied in knots as a noose to trees and they were done as a form of exercise and he just left them up there and then they come by and launch a full-scale investigation that a hate crime had been turned out and uh, then they investigate it and I think it was the the governor that even said okay well it turns out that it wasn't a hate crime but the intent doesn't matter it just matters what the impact was well no when it comes to a hate crime the intent is really the only thing that matters actually it's one of the reasons that I oppose hate crime legislation. But nonetheless, that's what happened. That's the story that we were given. And then there were people that were sort of clinging on to this narrative. And I think part of this may be because Bubba Wallace legitimately was angry at people accusing him of crafting and creating a hate crime out of nothing. And then he went ahead and, and did it. Like the allegation, I thought and, and assumed based on what I saw was unfair and then, based on Bubba Wallace's reaction to it, I think that he got caught up into this, and that his was equally unfair, to where he basically doubled down and said, no, it, it was a noose, and I know I have my own evidence. Now, you can't see that evidence, and I don't want to talk about what that evidence is, but I have my own evidence for me and my pit crew that it wasn't, and the FBI can say it wasn't a, a noose, but it was 100% a noose. Well, no, it's not. You see, now we have a group of people fighting over this thing, and both are equally in error. The one side 
which is the people that are siding with Bubba Wallace and saying that this was some kind of FBI cover-up and the FBI is lying and, and the investigation isn't real and that it was a noose no matter what you say, even though we have video evidence that proves it was put up literally almost a full year before Bubba Wallace was assigned that garage. The FBI has video evidence of that. People can look at the evidence in the face and go, nope, not true. People like that have made themselves immune to new information. They want narrative, not truth. They want what fits what they thought it should be, not what it actually is. They would rather live in their truth as opposed to actual truth. Reality is just an inconvenient thing to be overcome for them. And by the way, you have the exact same thing happening with the other camp that is trying to make Bubba Wallace into the next Jussie Smollett. That's not how this thing started. And even though the FBI's investigation shows and proves that through the evidence, they'll still hang on to this idea that the whole thing was manufactured. It's, you know, the Alex Jones kind of mindset. That everybody's in on the conspiracy, and the fact that uh, you know the fact that there's evidence just proves that the conspiracy goes even deeper. This kind of ridiculousness, and so those people also have been drawn into an error where this thing was ridiculous. What seems to me, based on everything that we know, what actually happened is NASCAR they freaked out and overreacted and completely ran roughshod over and, and made it public before they should have. And I think this is partly because NASCAR is trying to show how woke it is. You can tell that with them banning the Confederate flag and, and all the other things that they've been doing recently to try to show how woke they are. Um, but ultimately, I think that that's what happened. NASCAR got a little too antsy jumped the gun here, absolutely tried to get ahead of this story, even though they shouldn't have. What they should have done is held off and waited to see what was going to happen, uh, which is what you should do in things like this. Wait until you have more information, do some investigation, and then make a conclusion as opposed to making a conclusion, going public with it, and then having to walk yourself back. But nonetheless, that is what happened. And so I'm willing to grant that at least some grace and some benefit of the doubt to them. And I was going to do the same thing with Bubba Wallace, but now that he has decided that, no, I don't care what the investigation shows, I'm just going to double down and push my narrative anyway, regardless of what it is, I don't know that you can even grant the... Uh, I don't even think you can go to the extent to where you can say, okay, well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt on this, because if that is the case he's still being drawn into an error that he should never have been drawn into. He has made himself immune to new information, and that's never a good position to be in. And that's true regardless of what side you're on. Ultimately, this is the remedy to this. You can't control what other people do, but you can control it in yourself. Never have your mind so made up. Never be so married to one particular narrative because you like it or it confirms what you already believed or, or whatever your rationale is. Never be so married to a news story that you want it to be the same regardless of what it actually is. Be the kind of person that can, with new information, change their mind on what it ought to be and what actually happened. Because otherwise, we wind up with a society filled with nothing but knee-jerk reactions and Frankly, unfortunately, we're kind of already there, but I'm trying, I'm trying to remedy that a little bit. One of the reasons that the Bible talks so much 
about the tongue and the power of it and being slow to react to things and, and being cautious in that is because God knew that his people, especially since they were going to be representatives of him on earth, were going to absolutely need to have credibility in order for people to listen to them and to listen to the gospel. That's why we're told to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because when you see anger and go, well, now hang on a minute, maybe I should ask some questions before I get angry, then that serves two purposes. First of all, it means you don't ruin your credibility and get angry over something that you shouldn't. And second, and I think that this one may even be more important, the second thing there is, is that it means that when you do get angry, people take notice. When you do get angry, people take you seriously. You don't just fly off the handle at every little thing. So on the rare occasions, if you're slow to anger, that you actually do get angry, that means something to people. And just like Jesus Christ, we only have one episode of him ever really getting angry, frustrated and tired. Sure, that happens pretty often in the Gospels. But as far as actually getting angry and showing that in a way that was abundantly obvious, we've only got one incident in three years of his ministry. That's somebody that's pretty slow to anger. And it ensured that when he did get angry, he got angry about the right thing. That it was something that everybody actually paid attention to and remembered. And the same is true, slow to speak, and granted, that one's hard for me. I'm pretty quick to speak. And I think that we all are to a degree, but I'm even more so than most people. Most people, when they see, do you know what the average time that a American spends reading a news story is? It's eight seconds. And that's like a year and a half old, maybe even shorter than that now. And what that means is they're reading the headline, they're not actually clicking on the story or reading the content of it, and then they're immediately either sharing it or commenting on it. That's being pretty fast to speak. That's speaking before you have the whole story, and it's not healthy. I've gotten a lot better about this. I'm still working at it. But when I see something, I don't just need to immediate rela immediately react to it. That's a bad habit to be in. Take the time, read the story, get the details, then make a decision. Then decide what you're going to say and what your reaction is going to be. You know, it's funny. The Bible is incredibly practical. And the steps that it gives there, being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger... That's something that's super easy to remember, super easy to say, super e I mean, even a child can understand that. But it's incredibly hard to do. It is not an easy task. Just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy to do. So if you want to be the kind of person that people can rely on, that people see some credibility with, and, and that when you actually do get angry, that people actually pay attention to like, oh, this must actually be something that's really bad. You have to be that kind of person that is slow to speak and slow to anger. And sometimes the one that we miss the most, which may be the most important one, is to be quick to listen. I think that especially when you're talking about a sensitive issue, and this is why it's so important, especially right now, 
if we were a little more quick to listen, in other words, instead of just waiting to be able to give our rebuttal or to tell the other person why they're wrong and we're right or, or to be able to express ourselves and what we think about it, if we were a little bit more patient with that and saying, maybe I should at least hear what the other side has to say. At least I should uh, listen before I respond. That doesn't mean you shouldn't respond. And I've actually been very disappointed with and very frustrated with in, in recent memory people saying that, no, you need to just listen and, and just not say anything. Well, no, that's not a conversation. That's you, you know, basically throwing stuff at me and me having no recourse or, or no pushback. And then neither one of us can really benefit from that. But if you're quick to listen and then slow to speak and slow to anger, that, that does suggest that you're going to speak at some point. It didn't say not to speak. It says be slow to speak. That, that's a very different thing. But doing so will allow us to give a much more measured, much more rational response and one that people, frankly, are just more likely to listen to because even if you said the exact same thing, even if the content, the inflection, everything was exactly the same, if you run ramshot over a person and interrupt them in saying it, they're far less likely to listen to what you were saying as they would be if they you said exactly the same thing, same content and everything, after you've listened to them and they feel like they have been heard. Just that simple action alone, regardless of what the content is or regardless of how it changes, and, and frankly, I think it should change if you've actually been really listening, but even just the act of listening by itself will make the other person feel as though they have been heard and they're more likely to listen to what you have to say in response to it. And so I know I do this, and, and this is partially just because the show is called Tactics, but these are just some simple little things. They're little debate tricks that will help you in a discussion like this, but there's so much more than that. These are biblical principles. These are things that God recommends for how his people are going to react to other people and how they're going to interact with a fallen world in order to help bring them closer to his presence. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.